0: I uh, hope you picked up t- tonight's handout. We are in Psalm 51. We've been in Psalm 51 the last couple weeks ago. Uh, we are studying that Psalm because it's written out of the experience that we spoke of this morning, and that is David's sin with Bathsheba. We looked at the first half of the Psalm, which dealt with David's confession. Of his sin, and we talked about what true confession looks like tonight. We deal with the second half of the psalm that uh, describes David's repentance. So, we're talking about the distinguishing marks of true repentance. I wanted to thank our brother Jim tonight for his intentionality as he sang Psalm 51 from the Psalter. So, I uh, appreciate that. I think many of you uh, picked up on that when he was singing. That that Psalm 51 set to music. So tonight we begin by talking about repentance, what it is not, and then repentance, what it is. And so I have it is important to distinguish true or godly repentance from worldly repentance. So there is a, a repentance that isn't genuine, isn't real, it's it's not spiritual in nature, but it is described in the Word of God as worldly. And that is that it's the kind of repentance that an unsaved person experiences. And we need to distinguish between what is true and what is false repentance. This worldly repentance is referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting at verse 9, it reads, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. This is Paul writing about the incident that he addressed in 1 Corinthians about that man who had uh, a sexual relationship with probably his stepmother, and he confronted the whole situation, and there was true repentance. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, he writes, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That is, it is unprofitable. It doesn't result in salvation, doesn't result in forgiveness, but it is meaningless. It doesn't prove to be helpful. So I thought it'd be good to start, by way of introduction, to look at two examples in the Word of God of worldly repentance, so that we can get a sense of what we're talking about. The first is Esau. Esau expressed a worldly repentance after selling his birthright. I hope you know that story. I'm not going to go into it tonight. I believe that most of you here are quite familiar with that that story of how he sold his birthright, and uh, we have in this, this
1: uh, account uh, in
0: Hebrews where it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness brings up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral and holy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Remember this story. He He is lamenting. He is grieved. He is crying over the fact that he had sold his birthright, how stupid it was, to trade his birthright, his inheritance, for a single meal. But with little forethought, that's exactly what he did. And so he regretted it. But he didn't seek forgiveness of God. Uh, he didn't repent in the true sense of that word. He was just miserable and unhappy with the decision that he made. Perhaps more instructive for us is Judas, Judas. This is referring to Judas Iscariot. And Judas expressed a worldly repentance after betraying Jesus. Judas came to a place where he wished that he had not betrayed Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, and you know the account, uh, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's important to remember that Judas is not a believer, that that was the very reason that uh, Judas was chosen to be an apostle so that he would be the betrayer, so that in the sovereignty of God, he would be the instrument that God would use to hand Jesus over for crucifixion. He's referred to as a son of perdition which means a son of destruction. He wasn't a quote unquote saved individual. Well, even Judas comes to regret the fact that He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It begins in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He changed his mind, which is at the root of repentance, to change one's mind. Uh, he had second thoughts. He had wished that he hadn't betrayed Jesus and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So not only did Judas change his mind, but Judas tried to make amends for the wrong that he had done. He, he tried to make up for what he had done. And so in verse three, at the end, it says, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. And the elders. He didn't want the money. He wished that he didn't have the money. Then I give you the other translations, the NAS. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver. King James repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest. Judas experienced a great deal of guilt and even acknowledged what he had done was sinful saying, verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So he knew what he did was wrong. He knew what he did was sinful, and he even acknowledged it as such. He said it was sinful. It just wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just a bad choice. It was sinful. I'd like to point out I didn't put it on the, the handout but i like to point this out because I just find this incredible the response of the chief priests and the elders in verse 4 of Matthew 27 saying I have sinned by betraying innocent blood they said what is that to us see to it yourself these were the chief priests these were to be the spiritual leaders in Israel These were to be the ones that were to be the mouthpiece for God bringing reconciliation to God for the sins of the people. When Judas brings back this 30 pieces of silver and says that I have sinned, and remember that it's the chief priests and elders who give them the 30 pieces of silver. That's why he takes it to them. (laughs) They're the ones who paid them off. They don't acknowledge their own sinfulness they don't admit that what they did was wrong and they are incredibly indifferent and hard-hearted to this poor person who is now guilt-ridden and brings them this money and they say well what's that got to do with us that's none of our business see to it yourself you got to deal with that so they don't help him they don't lead him to true repentance they don't seek to bring about reconciliation But here's the here's the key. However, Jesus did not seek forgiveness from God. Instead, he chose to commit suicide. Verse five, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and he hanged himself. So he was truly sorry for what he had done. He recognized that what he had done was sinful. He recognized that he wanted nothing to do with this money any longer. In fact, throws it into the temple. But what he does not do is seek forgiveness from God. What he does not do is ask God to take away his sin. Here's the takeaway. First, One can be sorry for what one has done and not be truly repentant. That's very important to keep in mind. People can be sorry for what they have done and not be truly repentant. And most people, unless they are incredibly hard-hearted and incredibly insensitive, almost like a serial killer that becomes numb, unless the person is so hardened and numb as a result of repeated sin that their conscience has just seared, they're going to be a sense of feeling sorry for what they had done, sorry they have hurt people, sorry that they have brought pain and misery to their own life. Sorrow is not repentance. Secondly, one can regret what one has done and not be truly repentant. Both Judas and Esau regretted their decision. They realized it wasn't wise. At least Esau realized it wasn't wise. Judas, even more, realized how inappropriate it was, realized it was sinful, and yet was not truly repentant. Third, one can seek to make amends for what one has done and not be truly repentant. In fact, that's the world's way of trying to deal with guilt by trying to make it right, trying to make it up to someone or some person to pay back their their debt. And that's many people's conception of what salvation is it's good works, it's trying to make amends, it's trying to pay off the debt that one has for their sinfulness. So they turn over a new leaf. They decide to go to church. They decide to tie. They decide to do this. They decide to do that. They're trying to get rid of their sin by making amends. That's not true repentance. And number four, one can be under a tremendous degree of conviction and not be truly repentant. You see how Judas has this sense of guilt that is just overwhelming. It is devastating. Judas gets to the point, literally, that he can't live with it. He's suffering under this weight and load of guilt. And so he commits suicide as his way out. That's his answer. That's his answer. The worldly answer to guilt is, first of all, to tell people you shouldn't feel guilty over what you've done. It's not your fault. It's society's fault.
1: It's whatever, but it's not really your fault. That doesn't work. Deep down inside, people know that they're guilty. They're guilty. And so people try
0: to escape. People try to forget. And they turn to drugs. They turn to all kinds of escape-isms in order to try to clear their mind of these things so that they are not laboring under this sense of conviction. And unfortunately, some people actually do commit suicide. It just drives them to the place where They can't deal with it. They can't handle it.
1: How sad. How sad. And we should not lose in
0: the account that we heard this morning. If you were here this morning, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 12, out of which this psalm is written.
1: And if you remember, when David hears that the child dies, Those that are around him are afraid he's going to commit suicide. They're afraid that that's going to be his response.
0: And remember, he's laboring under this accusation also that he is responsible for this child's death. But that's not his response. His response is confession and true repentance. So tonight, we want to look at what that true repentance consists of. So our theme is, what are the distinguishing marks of true repentance? Well, first, true repentance consists of a desire for spiritual renewal. David had a desire for complete transformation of character. See, true repentance seeks to go in a different direction. True repentance is a a 180. It isn't just saying, Lord, forgive me for what I have done, but it also wants to be rid of that which caused that sin to take place in the first place. So David had a desire for complete transformation of character. David wanted a heart free from corruption. Create in me a clean heart. A clean heart is a pure heart, it's purged, it's spotless heart. And he says, create
1: in me. That is, make my heart new. David wanted
0: to once again be a man after God's own heart. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, And then he says this, and renew a right spirit within me. The word renew is to repair, it's to refurbish, it's to make like new. And I used this illustration before, but it means something to me, being a car buff. I like to watch the shows where they refurbish automobiles, where they restore them. And they're as good as new. And David is seeking to be restored. He wants a right spirit, a true spirit, an upright spirit, David wants to be a man after God's own heart again.
1: David wants to be on fire for the Lord as he once was. Secondly, David had a desire for continued
0: service to God. David wanted to remain under God's watchful care. He says, Cast me not away from your presence. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, we have an account of Saul. And remember, Saul is not repentant over all that he had done and chasing after David, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the evil spirit from the Lord troubled him.
1: He was troubled. David wanted a sense of God's renewed presence.
0: He wanted to be comforted by God. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 32, also written out of this same experience. And Psalm 32 deals with conviction. So we have confession, we have repentance. And then Psalm 32 is thrown in the middle there with this, well actually predates those two because talking about his conviction. And he says, day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned to the drought of summer. Say law, That his life was miserable. David wanted to get over being miserable. He wanted to enjoy God's presence again. And so many people When they commit sin, the last place they want to be is in God's presence. They don't want to come to church. They don't want to sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. They want to be confronted with their sin. But remember David, after the child dies, he gets up, and what does he do? He goes into the house of the Lord and worships. He wants to be in God's presence. Isaiah chapter 6, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. David had his sin dealt with. Now he wants to be in the presence of God. Number two, what was David asking for when he was praying for the Holy Spirit would not be taken from him? Psalm 51, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And uh, as we think in New Testament terms, you know, can you lose your salvation, can the Holy Spirit be removed from you? And the answer is no. What is David actually praying for? Well, A, in essence, David wanted to remain king of Israel. For the Holy Spirit came upon David when he was anointed to be king, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So this Holy Spirit rushed upon David and there are so many different ministries of the Holy Spirit. He inspires, he indwells, he empowers, he enables and we could talk about a lot of different ministries of the Holy Spirit. And one of them is typified in the word of God as coming upon an individual that speaks of a special way in which they are empowered to do the the work that God has given them to do. Samson, the Holy Spirit came upon him and with that he gained strength and was able to judge Israel. And the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals and they'd prophesy. There's a lot of different effects that happens by the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals. It's God's enabling them to do his will, his bidding, his purpose for their lives. And so when he is anointed to be king, the Holy Spirit comes upon David to empower him, to enable him to be king. And at the very same time, the Holy Spirit departed from Saul when he was no longer to be king. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. You see, it's the very next verse. Verse 13, the Holy Spirit comes upon David. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit departs from Saul in the sense that the kingship is going to be removed from Saul. God is not going to empower him. God is not going to enable him to remain as king. So David's request, in essence, is let me continue to be king. We saw this morning that he was worthy of death. He was worthy of death for the sins which he committed. God said that he would not die, that his sins would be forgiven. But David wants more than just to live. He he wants to continue to be king. And may I say, not for a selfish reason, but in order to do what God had called him to do. He really wanted to be serving. He he really wanted to be that instrument of God. Well, D, all too often, sins can disqualify us from the service of God. We may forfeit opportunities to serve God when we sin. On the other hand, God can and sometimes does restore individuals to useful service. But that's a mark of true repentance. When one is really concerned about what their sin means in terms of their opportunity to serve God. Or it's a, a tragic event when one is removed from that service. And we saw this morning how God wonderfully answered that prayer. Not only was David not removed as king, but that kingship is going to pass on to his son, and it passes on to Solomon. Solomon. And God had made a promise to David, and that was that David would ultimately have a son that would sit upon the throne, and it would be an everlasting kingdom. And according to the New Testament, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. A descendant of Solomon. Thirdly, David desired a restored intimacy with God. Psalm 51 verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, David was not asking for his salvation to be restored. He was not asking to be saved again. He was seeking the joy of that salvation to be restored. That he would delight in this salvation. A salvation that he had taken For granted, a salvation that he had abused, a salvation that didn't mean to him what it meant at one time in his life. And so we need to be careful that we do not forfeit the joy of our salvation. When we are living in sin, unrepentant sin, when we're under conviction, when we know that God is not pleased with us, we aren't going to have joy. We're not going to have joy. Let me take a step back from that, far from that precipice, far from that that cliff of
1: falling into sin. Even apathy. Apathy indifference. You know, we can get to the place where
0: we can come, become pretty apathetic towards the blessings that we have from God. We, we can take them for granted. And if we start taking those blessings for granted, we become murmurs, we become whiners, we become complainers. Rather than give God praise, we begin to find fault with life and others and All kinds of situations. We can get to the place where reading the Bible becomes not a delight but a chore. The psalmist said, in thy law do I meditate day and night. That It was a joy to David. But he had lost that joy of meditating in his word. I would say to you, if you find yourself spiritually apathetic, if you find yourself indifferent we're going to be in the new year real soon and you know what the first year's message is going to be it's going to be on reading your Bible through in a year if you've gotten tired of reading your Bible if, if, you, if it's gotten old to you if it isn't sweet and precious then I say let's pray that God would give us the joy of our salvation and to help you in that, there's a book that I'd like to recommend. Um, I thought it was a very, very powerful book when I read it. And uh, I, I just found it to be a delight. And it's entitled, Salvation Belongs to Our God, Celebrating the Bible's Central Story. It's written by Christopher Wright. Any chance that's in the library? Okay, if, if it's not... Great. Okay. So, uh, Lord willing, will be here next week. But it's, it's entitled Salvation Belongs to Our God Celebrating the Bible's central, central Story. If you like Kindle or whatever, you can read it on there. But it will really help, I think, in seeing salvation anew and afresh and, and from a different light. And it's a joy. It's a joy. D, David desired a renewed belonging to do the will of God For it says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and then uphold me with a willing spirit. This whole second half of this verse, uphold me with a willing spirit, David wanted this renewed commitment to be long-lasting. That's what it means to be upheld, okay? Uh, To to be held up. David realizes that he can't do this on his own, that this willing spirit, this this desire to serve God is is a gift from God. It's what God enables him to do. And so he wants to be upheld by God. He, he wants to be held up. He, he realizes his weakness. And that's what sin ought to do. That's a, a real part of, of true repentance. It comes to a recognition. It's an ownership of what we have done. It doesn't seek excuses.
1: And it doesn't justify our actions. But it agrees with God. Yes, this is what I've
0: done. And more than that, it's a recognition that that's all I'm going to do apart from the grace of God. That I need a change of heart. That that I need to be upheld. That there has to be this constant seeking of a relationship with God. Jesus said an important statement and a lot of times it's a word that's left out and that is take up thy cross daily. Take up thy cross daily and follow me. Now it's not in both gospel accounts but it's in one. Take up thy cross daily. And follow me. There, there needs to be a renewed commitment each and every day to live for God. Valley of Vision. There, there are prayers in there, daily prayers, morning and evening. And they really center upon that whole aspect of recommitting yourself each day to doing the will of God. And uh, if you're kind of new to the church, one of the things that you notice by now that I don't do is I don't give altar calls and ask people to come up and rededicate their lives to the Lord.
1: Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I'm afraid it can be very misleading. Because it's constant. It's
0: not once and done. You don't just come up front and dedicate your life to the Lord and now you're you're just free and Now you're not going to struggle with sin. You're not going to struggle with temptation. You're not going to struggle with what you just did. We need to present ourselves daily to God, seeking his enablement. That's what true repentance is. It's ongoing. It's lasting. It's not momentary. It's not when things just start to get better. I forget about what I've done. But true repentance recognizes this is a problem that I'm going to have for the rest of my life apart from the grace of God. For this is who I am.
1: And so I need the Lord. And I need him constantly. And if he doesn't uphold me, I'm going to fall back to my sinful ways. Number two, the effects of true repentance. True
0: repentance results in a concern for the spiritual well-being of the lost. Then I will teach transgressor your ways and sinners will return to you. Then, then, once I get right with God, then I will be concerned about others. Secondly, true repentance results in a desire to praise God. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. That blood guilt of having killed Uriah, the the blood was on David's hands. Deliver me from a blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will
1: sing aloud of your righteousness. I will declare your righteousness. And that's striking, not just your mercy,
0: not just your goodness, but your righteousness, that what you say and do is right. Even as we describe what took place this morning and how David ascribed to God the appropriateness of what God had done, that God was right. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And that's not an exaggeration. We've got these psalms that were sung
1: in public worship. Can you imagine the king of Israel writing such explicitly lyrics of his own sinfulness?
0: See, true repentance results in a concern for sincere worship. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. If you memorize scripture I would encourage you to memorize Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. It may sound like a strange portion of Scripture to memorize, but what I want to point out to you is that David got it. David understood what so many of the Israelites did not understand, and that is that they were not made right with God just by a wooden rote of offering sacrifices to God. That because they offered a lamb or because they offered a ram or because they put their hand on an animal, that did not save them. David realized that what was required was true repentance, a broken and contrite heart. He realized that there had to be a sense of their own spiritual need and awareness. And David understood that ultimately that those sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ. So did Isaiah. So did the prophets. And I would say to you, so did a remnant in Israel. Because Galatians says that the gospel was preached to them. That means that they knew it. They understood it. They were looking for the Messiah, and they understood that the Messiah would be the Christ who would take away sin. Isaiah 53. The minority got it. The majority did not. The majority were just going through the motions. Just like there are many today in churches... That offer prayers and take communion and have no understanding of what communion is all about. No understanding about the blood of Christ taking away sin. No understanding of what it means to have Him bear in His body their sins on the cross. They're going through ritual. Ritual will not save. The waters of baptism will not save. They're meaningless without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. D, true repentance results in a desire for genuine spiritual well-being of God's people. Verse 18, do good design Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. So, he wanted the consequences of his sin, which I kind of brushed over in this view of 2 Samuel chapter 12 for in association with the death of that child that says because you had given occasion, uh, King James says, to blaspheme, that God's name was dishonored through that whole process, that God's people were hurt, harmed, as a result of what David had done. It was more than just what David had done to himself and what David had done to his family and even Uriah and even those soldiers
1: that died. It was the whole nation that suffered as a result of what David had done. So he prays, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem.
0: Make it strong. Make it strong. So, a person who's truly repentant is concerned about what their sin has done, not only to themselves and to their family, not
1: only to their loved ones, but for the cause of Christ, for the name of Jesus, for other
0: Christians, children, people that have looked up to leaders, and they recognize that my sin has been harmful. The cause of Christ
1: and desires that it be undone, that God would be glorified. Verse
0: 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David says, When I have confessed my sin, when I have acknowledged what I have done, when I have sought your forgiveness, then it's appropriate to be offering these sacrifices. He wasn't ignoring the sacrificial system. He understood it, and he understood it well. They did not remove sin. Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It never, ever did take away sin. Romans tells us that it was laid upon Christ, that Christ was the sin bearer before the foundation of the world, that these bulls and goats just foreshadowed, just pictured the coming of Christ. David got it. And then David offered these sacrifices as a testimony, as a witness to his faith and his trust in God. And then he knew that God would be pleased. You know, the taking of communion is meaningful. The waters of baptism are wonderful if they're preceded by faith, if they're done as a testimony, as a witness to our salvation and not as a means of obtaining our salvation. David understood the difference. And so must we, if we're really going to, obtain the benefits of true repentance. David wanted the negative effects that his sin had upon the people to be removed. 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. David said, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, to David, Lord, also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. That scorned is what the King James uses the word blaspheme, and I like that translation better. It's
1: to cause people to speak ill of God. When Christians of notoriety fall into great sin, all of Christianity gets a
0: black eye. You know the high-profile individuals that have sinned in our lifetime and how the media, how the world takes delight in it and mocks and ridicules and questions the power of God and the reality
1: of faith and the reality of righteousness and holiness. So the conclusion is,
0: as we confess our sin, which was the first half of the psalm, it needs to be associated with true repentance, not just feeling sorry, not just regretting what we have done, Not just wishing that we had done differently and not even trying to make amends.
1: But coming to grips with the reality of sin that I have committed it. That apart from God's grace, I will continue to commit it.
0: That I really need his deliverance from this addiction. I need deliverance from that which overcomes me. My lust cannot be conquered by pulling myself up by my bootstraps. It's not just me turning over a new leaf. It won't work. It won't last.
1: It has to be a groveling, a recognition of how needy we are spiritually
0: but not just then remaining in that groveling state but to recognize the gloriousness of forgiveness and how God does restore how God can enable us to be better than what we are how he can transform our lives and make us into a godly people and when we sin again to keep a short record and ask for forgiveness and ask that God would help us once again and to recognize that on this side of glory it will be a constant battle. But it will be one in which we are victorious for we will stand before him sinless and be in all eternity future sinless. There will be nothing that will undefile.
1: We will be free from sin at last. Repentance longs for that day.
0: Let's pray. Help us, O oh God. Help us in our sinfulness to confess it. And help us to truly repent. To be willing to own what we have done and not make excuse for ourselves. And Lord, in owning that sin, to recognize that it's a heart issue. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. It's not create a different environment for me. It's not move me to a place where there's no TV. Surround me with different kinds of people.
1: It's a recognition that my sin is a result of my heart. That's the problem. So help us in our hearts to flee temptation, to flee
0: what we should not see, to flee those that we should not be around, but to recognize, oh God, that the issue is our heart. So create in us a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within us. Bring us back to the place where we once were if we are wandering from you. And then uphold us with a willing spirit. Keep us our head above water. Help us to constantly be seeking you day in and day out. Realizing that we are never so spiritually strong that we
1: don't need you. That we don't need your protection. That we don't need your strength. That we don't need your renewal. Help us to understand that when we are strong, that's when we fall.
0: So, Lord, give us humility, true humility, to own our weakness. For in our weakness, then we are strong. Help us to rely upon you, dear Lord, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.